Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, today we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're still in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We'll be right in the middle of John chapter 1, where we're going to be introduced to a great man of God who in turn is going to introduce us to an even greater man of God. And the people that I'm talking about are first is John the Baptist. And Jesus himself said of John the Baptist, there was no one that's ever lived that was greater than he. In fact, he says, no man born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. But then John the Baptist turns around and of course he says that I am serving, I'm the one called to be the voice of the one who is actually the Word, the Logos. And he says he is by far the greatest one that's ever existed. He's the Savior of the world. And so John the Baptist, of course, was introducing us to Jesus, whom we're going to see in just a moment, was someone that John says, I'm not even worthy to kneel down and untie his sandal strap. So these are the two men that we're going to meet. The gospel writers, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, always pair John the Baptist up with Jesus and his ministry, his coming. And the reason for that is because the scriptures prophesied. The Old Testament prophets, some of them 900 years before Jesus and John were actually born and came to this earth, They had prophesied that there would be a forerunner, a prophet who would come and pave the way for the people of God to meet their Savior, their Messiah, Jesus. And so John is clearly that person. You know, as we read through the story of John the Baptist and Jesus, we find out that they had a lot of similarities. Both Jesus and John had their births foretold by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel also told us that both of these men would have miraculous births. In fact, of course, we know Jesus was born to a mother who was a virgin. And so she was supernaturally impregnated by the Holy Spirit, a miraculous birth. John, too, had a miraculous birth. And it was miraculous in the fact that he was born to elderly parents who were way past childbearing years. Both Jesus and John had godly parents, even though both were certainly not what we would call high society people. In fact, they were low society people, just average, ordinary, working class, even poor parents, but they were both very, very godly. We also know that they both brought a tremendous amount of joy to their parents and their families, 
during their upbringing, both of them were filled with the Holy Spirit even before they were born. And then, of course, both were given very unique and special callings. So let's take a look at what we read about in the middle of John's gospel. This is John the apostle, the disciple who wrote this gospel. And let's look at what he says about another John, John the Baptist. Let's pick up in verse 19. He says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now as we kind of read through this, I want you to think about this question they were asking. Basically, who are you? John the Baptist, who are you? But I think behind this question was a more sincere question, and it really was, who do you think you are? And see if you agree with me as we kind of go through this. These were priests and Levites who were sent by the Jewish religious leaders. The Pharisees, who were the law keepers, the Old Testament law keepers, and they were also the ones who promoted the Jewish traditions. And then also the Sadducees. These were the wealthy elite priests from wealthy families and the ruling class. They were the ones who then sent their subordinates, priests and Levites, to Jesus to ask him, who are you? Or maybe better, we should think, who do you think you are? And here's what they asked him. They said, are you the Messiah? We see in verse 20, that was a question that had to have been asked. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So clearly they asked him, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I am not the Messiah. Then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Why would they ask him that question? Well, it's because 400 years before John and Jesus walked on this earth, a prophet named Malachi had said that one was going to come before the great day of the Lord, one who would be preparing the way of the Lord, and he would be Elijah. And so they said, are you Elijah? And in their tradition, their minds, they thought that Elijah might actually physically come back. Remember Elijah. Who was Elijah? He was the great prophet lived 850 years before Jesus. He was a a miracle-working prophet, and he was a prophet who never died. Remember the story where a chariot of fire just comes down and swoops him up and takes him up to heaven. And so there was always this idea that Elijah was going to show back up on earth, and then Malachi makes that statement. So they were looking for someone named Elijah. They were thinking Elijah might actually return physically. And he said, are you Elijah? That was their question. He said, I am not. Then they also asked, are you the prophet? And probably here, the question is coming from the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses talks about a great prophet who again would come and pave the way for God's anointed one, the Messiah. And so they're asking, are you that guy? Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, well, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness 
make straight the way of the Lord. So he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet, who lived 700 years before Jesus and John were walking on this earth. And he says, I'm that guy. I'm the one that is making straight the way of the Lord. In other words, I'm the voice speaking for the Logos, the Word. I'm the one preparing the way for people to meet him. I'm making the pathway straight. Now, it says in verse 24, the Pharisees who had been sent, so some of these priests and Levites were Pharisees. It says those Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And I really believe this is kind of where we get the condescending tone of these religious leaders. Basically, who gave you the authority to baptize? John was baptizing these people in the wilderness. And we do need to understand that Jews did have a cultural tradition, a religious tradition of baptism, but it always happened at the temple with pure water from the temple. And it was done by qualified priests only. And in fact, they typically baptized only Gentiles because Jews did not need to have the cleansing. And so John wasn't doing any of that. He didn't have the right credentials, didn't go apparently to the right seminary, have the right trainings, and certainly was not doing it in the right way at the right place. So what we see here, I think, is these religious leaders and their representatives are saying, who are you? And not only who are you, but they were basically saying, who do you think you are doing these things? Well, unfazed, John replies in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Among you. He's already among you, John is saying. And yet you do not know him. He is the one who comes after me. And then again, this very humble statement, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then verse 28 says, all of this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, as we think about that, this is Bethany. This is not the Bethany that we've talked about even recently, the Bethany that was really close to the Mount of Olives, the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus where Jesus and the disciples often stay. That was the Bethany that was really close to Jerusalem. It says, this is the Bethany that was on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. This Bethany was part of what we would call the Judean wilderness. And this is where John's ministry took place. Now, when I think about a wilderness, I don't know about you, but I've kind of been around Arkansas a little bit too long. And I think about the Washita National Forest or maybe the Ozarks. I think about pine trees. I think about those beautiful mountain streams with oak trees lining the streams and the water sources, all kinds of fish and wildlife, things like that. 
Well, that was really not the type of wilderness that John the Baptist lived in. It's not the type of wilderness that was part of Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. In fact, I'm showing a picture here. I'll let you kind of see what this wilderness might have looked like. And here it is. This is a famous picture, by the way. And it's at a place called Qumran, which is right next to the Dead Sea. It's on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And you might recognize this picture, some of you, because Qumran, and you see that in the foreground, that little uh, cave. That is one of the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They were found thousands of years after they were buried there, hidden there. And that was a huge, huge find in terms of scriptures and uh, scriptural evidence of what the original scriptures would have been like. All in these scrolls. Well, in the background of that, you see these desert barren mountains. This is the Judean wilderness. And John the Baptist was practicing his ministry in this type of wilderness, not far from where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. He was baptizing on the Jordan River right where it flows into the Dead Sea. And so I think it's good for us to kind of understand the place where this was happening, the context of where it was. John the Baptist was clearly a great man of God, but he was kind of what they would have considered an odd man of God, a bizarre person. I think the word eccentric would clearly define him. He looked different than everyone else. We're told that he dressed in camel's hair. That was his his robe made out of camel's hair with a leather belt. He was a throwback, looking like the prophets of the the, the ages before him, the days, the olden days, hundreds of years before he lived. So he did not dress like everyone else dressed. He also, we believe from what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, would have been a, what's uh, known as a Nazarite, somebody that took a vow. His parents were told that he was not to drink alcohol. That would have been part of a Nazarite vow. And part of that vow would have also meant that he would never cut his hair. So when you think about John the Baptist, you need to think about this guy that's dressing in strange clothes, had very long, probably bushy hair, probably a long, full beard. He was a, he was a mountain man, but he was a desert mountain man. He also, we know, had a very strange diet. But it would be a diet that one that was living in the desert wilderness would be forced to eat. It was a diet of locust and wild honey. And uh, I kind of picture him as a pretty skinny guy based on his diet. And I actually think he would have looked a little bit malnourished. In fact, if you want to just get a picture of what I think John the Baptist would have looked like, I want you to think about Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. After several years on that island, only Tom had more to eat than John the Baptist would have had to eat. That's kind of the picture I think we should see. A strange, bizarre guy that chose to live in solitude, chose the, the, the life of silence, the life of simplicity, the life of scarcity out there in that heat during the day and those cold nights surviving in the desert. That's where he was, 
And that's where the people began to go to meet him. And I think that's interesting too. He didn't come to where the people were. The people came to him. Why did they come to him? Because he was anointed, full of the Holy Spirit. They knew there was something about this man. God was drawing them out to the desert to meet this guy. This guy, as far as we know, John the Baptist did not perform any miracles. He wasn't the miracle-working type of prophet. What they were drawn to was the voice. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. They came for the voice, for his preaching ministry. And what's interesting is we think about and we get some insight in the Gospels of John's preaching ministry. And I think we could kind of define his preaching ministry with one key theme that he focused on. And we could even define that theme with one key word. And the word was not love, the word was not faith, the word was not grace, the word was not believe, the word was not even gospel. All of all these things were, of course, associated with it. You know what the word was? The word that I would choose to describe John the Baptist preaching is the word repent. And where do we get that? Well, we get it in both Matthew and Luke. Here's one place, Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Look, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was his message. That was the theme of all of his sermons. And we read in different places, like in Luke chapter 3, he talks about some of the specifics of people coming and hearing that message of repent. And people would ask him, well, what does that mean? And John would tell them, it means that you need to have a generous lifestyle. You need to take care of those who are less fortunate of you. You need to share, if you have extra food or extra clothing, share it with somebody that does not have those things. Be a kind and compassionate person. He also shared that, God, that message of repent with tax collectors, we're told. And they would ask him, apparently, what does it mean for me to repent? And he would say, stop taking advantage of your neighbor. Stop collecting more money than you are required to. Treat people with respect. Be honest. Be righteous. We also know that even Roman soldiers were coming to John the Baptist, hearing his message of repent, and they would ask him, what does it mean for us to repent? And he would say, stop extorting people. Stop using your position of power to take advantage of others. Be content with your pay. Treat people rightly. And then he even tells us in Matthew chapter 11, we're told that some of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees showed up in the desert, made the 23-mile journey from Jerusalem, brought their food and their water, and were prepared to camp out for several days so they could hear the voice of this prophet. And when they showed up, guess what John said to them? He said, who warned you, you brood of vipers? John had a unique style, a preaching style. <laughs> what does that mean? It means 
who warned you, you family of snakes, venomous snakes who are spreading your deadly poison, your dangerous messages? And this is, where the, this is what John the Baptist did. He confronted people with their sin. And his message was, if you want to get ready to meet Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, you're going to have to deal with your sin. You're going to have to get real about your sin and then get right with God concerning your sin. Repentance means not just recognizing that you're a sinner. It means being sincerely sorry for your sin and willingness to do something about it. You're willing to change, wanting to change. And one of the great things we're going to see in this message is that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and truly repents, they do receive salvation, but they also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who allows us to overcome sin. If you're a believer, you and I can overcome sin. We don't have to just tolerate it. We don't have to just keep hiding it in that hallway closet of our lives that nobody knows about. We have to get real with it. And confess it, John later says in one of his books, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of your sins. So we have to confess it, and then through the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the support of the community of faith, the body of Christ, there's a corporate element to this, accountability, we can live past our sins move them to the past so that we can live righteous lives through the grace of God. See, John the Baptist was preaching a message. That's what he was doing. I think it's interesting for us to note. How was he preparing the people for Jesus? He was preaching about repentance. And if you and I want to certainly meet Jesus, we have to repent of our sins That's the repentance that leads to salvation. But also, if we want to walk with Jesus fully and experience the glory of the Lord and be used effectively as his ambassadors and accomplish the purposes that God has for us, we too must repent. That's the repentance that leads to sanctification, something that all believers are supposed to be pursuing. So one of the practical applications for us is hear the message. If you and I want to know this Jesus and want to follow this Jesus that John is the voice for, we have to deal with sin. We have to repent. And quite honestly, I don't think we're all that good at it in our culture, in our world. And in many cases, it's the thing that gets in the way of us being fully used to bring the full glory to God and accomplish his will and purposes here and now. Well, let's look at the last section. Verse 29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he sees Jesus. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And so there was something that happened, something spectacular and revealing that happened when Jesus was baptized by John. 
And this is what he says, verse 32. He says, then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so when John baptized Jesus, it was then that this event happened. He literally saw the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus like a dove in bodily form. He saw it, and he had previously been told by the Spirit that was the sign that he was to look for. And so when he saw that, he knew he was the one. I don't think it's saying that John had not met Jesus before. They were relatives. I think they knew each other well. He just did not know he was the one, the anointed one, the holy one, the long-awaited Messiah until this event happened when Jesus was baptizing him. He also would have heard, we're told later, and other uh, gospel writers that he would have heard the voice of God speaking to his son Jesus. And he said, you are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. And so John knew, without a doubt, who the Lamb of God was and is, the one who would take away the sins of the world. What does this mean, Lamb of God? Is he talking about the, the suffering Lamb that Isaiah 53 mentions? Is he talking about the Paschal lamb that the Israelites who were in Egypt were told to kill that lamb and spread the blood over the door frames of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over them if it saw the blood? Or is it talking about the, the lamb that was slain that we read about in Revelation that was the one who was going to conquer sin, death, and, and even the evil one? Well, the answer to that is yes. He was talking about all of those things. He was talking about the greatest human being to ever live, the holy son of God, the one who is eternal, never had a beginning or an ending. He's talking about the creator of the universe. He's talking about the one who gives life and sustains life, and it's both eternal life and the abundant life on earth. He's talking about the one who has overcome spiritual darkness. That's the one that John was pointing to. That's the Jesus that you and I are so privileged to know if we have a relationship with him. This is an extraordinary story that we're talking about here because it's describing extraordinary people and extraordinary lives that come when we choose to repent and believe and follow our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.